You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. Thank you for joining us today for a discussion about some new legislative work in the area of special education. My name is Sloan Simmons. I'll be your host. I'm one of the firm's co-litigation practice group leaders out of the Sacramento office. And I'm happy to be joined today by three of our fantastic special education 504 and student attorneys. The irony of today is that I think we're going to be pretty quick, but it's the first time I can recall doing a podcast with three three people at once in addition to myself. So this is this will be a, a fun little mix-up. Our first guest, Marcy Gutierrez, who, is, who has done uh, podcasts before, including a, a recent one on least restrictive environment, is one of our, our longtime and most experienced special education attorneys, a co-practice group leader in the special education area, also out of the Sacramento office. For the first time on the podcast, uh, Kyle Rainey is here with us today, one of our outstanding special education 504 and student attorneys also out of the Sacramento office with many years of experience in this area and uh, daily engagement of clients on these issues. Also a repeat, a repeat visitor, Allie Bivens, also here out of our Sacramento office, a co-practice group leader for the special education practice group, an attorney who works extensively in, in special ed students, as well as to the extent I can get her over there to litigation. So good morning and thanks for being here today, guys. Good morning. Thank you, Sloan. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Yeah. So, like I said, I think we're going to move pretty quick. There's a short list of bills, but I also want to get some some sense from you three when we're wrapping up as to kind of things to look ahead to as, as we reach this point in the school year. But, but why don't we start with AB 605, which relates to assistive technology devices. Okay, so AB 605 was passed. It goes into effect January 1st of 2020. And this bill actually requires uh, school districts and charter schools to provide on a case-by-case basis access to assistive technology devices for um, students that with disabilities that require access in the home to receive a FAPE. So this is actually something that was already required by the IDEA in terms of deciding on a case-by-case basis whether a student needs access to assistive technology outside of the school environment. But it, it included an additional requirement which requires school districts to provide access to these students who need these assistive technology devices outside of the school setting. Um, if a student changes districts, then the original district has to continue to provide that assistive technology until either the expiration of a time period or until the student um, receives that an equivalent type of device from their new school district. So so just so I'm clear, Allie, so one, federal already had this in general, but California has taken this a step further. And you're saying that if I'm District A providing an assistive technology device for a student in the out-of-school setting, that student transfers to District B, they don't have that same technology, that District A is still on the hook for that technology for a period of time? Yes, for, for a period of time. Um, it's two months. and so then a two-month period, okay. The school district, that the new school district is required to provide the student um, with an equivalent device. It doesn't have to be the exact same device, but it has to um, 
provide the same sorts of assistance that the previous device So provided. District B might determine that there is a equivalent but different device, which I can already anticipate leading to disputes, right, with the family that says, heck no, that, that what I had in District A is what I want in District B. Is District A in the hypothetical financially responsible for provision of those assistive technology devices when the student moves to District B for those two months, or is District B on the hook financially? So the the original district, so District A, would be responsible for continuing to provide the device that the student already has. So in terms of financial responsibility, that District A would have already purchased the device, and it's just allowing the student continued access then District B would take on the responsibility of um, acquiring that uh, replace equivalent device. Got it. One, one thing we want when we're raised here, though, is that even though District A is responsible providing the actual device, if a student transfers into a new district with a device and the staff that are working with that student don't know how to use that device to facilitate the student's um, independence and communication and access to curriculum, the new district may be responsible for making sure that its, its staff is trained to be able to use that device. So that's probably a key distinction that we might want to make sure that our clients are aware of. Interesting. I can still fill the argument by a family, though, that unless or until District B staff is trained up, you got to send your folks over. <laughs> Fights to come. Yeah. Fights to come. Fights so, to come. <laughs> Kyle, what about SB 75? Thank you for asking, Sloan. Uh, SB 75 is uh, an education finance bill, uh, education omnibus budget trailer bill. And really from the 30,000-foot the 30, 30, level, this is making more uh, funds available to LEAs that are providing early education and preschool programs uh, to, to their young students. So for instance, this is providing a $300 million one-time general fund grant for full-day kindergarten uh, facilities grant program to make changes to programs uh, to prioritize schools converting from part day to full day kindergarten programs. Um, and a lot of this is, is actually facilities related. It also changes the eligibility requirements for state preschool programs to provide priority access to full day state preschool program slots to income eligible families with a need for full day care, which means the parents are either working or in school with remaining full day slots going to other income eligible families. Kyle, what's the special ed, our special ed connection here? Special ed connection here is that you have, uh, as a school district, you have an obligation to provide a FAPE to students beginning at the age of three. And also uh, under the other portion of the IDEA, I believe Part B, or Part C, excuse me, the early intervention portion of, of the IDEA, you also may be on the hook to provide preschool services to students. Um, and this essentially frees up or provides additional funding to school districts to, to be able to meet the obligation. And I, I, I believe in some of our discussions about this bill, you've also said that there's a direct nexus to funding for students with disabilities in this preschool context, right? Yes, so uh, this bill creates the Special Ed Early Intervention Preschool Grant that is available to LEAs based on the number of three and four-year-olds with exceptional needs in their district, and this is specifically students with IEPs. Interesting. So a, a grant program amongst the other broader elements of this ominous bud, bud, budget bill, a grant program specifically aimed at providing grant funds for districts running preschool programs with a certain number of students of IEPs uh, with disabilities in those programs. Correct. Correct. 
And again, like I said, th- this is a very wide-ranging budget bill, uh, so I just kind of went through and highlighted some of the interesting things that I thought that may have some some special ed or 504 crossover. Um, another interesting piece of this bill is that it establishes the Mental Health Student Services Act, uh, which makes funds available to school districts across a five-year period to be used for services on K-12 campuses for suicide prevention, dropout prevention, outreach to at-risk youth, and placement assistance for ongoing services and uh, to meet other mental health needs of students and youth. Yeah, well, I can see that being a valuable program, both in the general ed intervention type type area, but also you know, indicia that come up in that context that may lead to the need to offer assessment and supports for those kids as potentially 504 IEP eligible. This funding is just absolutely critical. It's good that our state legislature is seeing the need to identify additional funding sources for not only preschoolers, but students that are at risk for these the mental health issues that you raised, Kyle. So I think this is an important piece of legislation that uh, came out of our budget trailer bill. Marcy, what about AB 1172 and uh, non-public, non-sectarian schools or agencies? Well, this is an important piece of legislation that's going to go into effect with the new year. It has to do with um, the relationship between our school districts and our NPSs. So, for example, if a student is attending a non-public school by virtue of a placement um, that's made by a school district by the IEP process, this piece of legislation is going to impose additional or new monitoring requirements on school districts. So school districts are going to be required to monitor NPSs if the school district actually has a student attending in a non-public school. Um, The purpose of this, obviously, is to ensure that students that are attending non-public schools are attending programs that are safe, that have staff that are fully trained to address the needs for students. And there are specific parts of this bill that focus on students with behavioral needs, as well as the NPS staff to make sure that they have the proper training to address those behavioral needs. We all know in the news last year, there, there was a, a death here in the, in the California area at a non-public school. So this this legislation is aimed at, you know, hopefully avoiding that kind of situation yeah, in the future. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind. I'm assuming that's the impetus to this bill, is that degree of supervision. I, it does, although knowing the shortfall in special education funding, not only nationally, but in particular here in California, I think that although clearly intended for the correct purposes, and to avoid another incident like that, which was in the news this year, um, to me it is another obligation, another responsibility for school districts for which there probably is not an equivalent amount of funding that's being provided by the state to account for that. You're absolutely right. This bill certainly doesn't come with any additional funding, but I actually think it's a step in the right direction. We've always advised school districts to monitor students that are attending NPSs anyways, and now the law is making it clear. One thing that I think is important to emphasize is the law specifically has a provision that says before you place a student in a non-public school, you must conduct um, a visit to that school. And that's a really important change to note. We don't want to have IEP teams placing students at various NPSs unless someone from the school district has actually observed that NPS prior to that placement. Interesting. Kyle, what about um, visually impaired pupils and legislation in that area? Sure. So uh, AB 947 has recently uh, been acted into into law and state and federal law already required school districts to meet the needs of students with visual impairments under the IDEA and under Section 504. They're required to uh, ensure effective communication 
with students in that area. What this bill does is it for students who are blind or who have a visual impairment, um, this is enacting what's called the Expanded Core Curriculum, the ECC, which is a group of concepts and skills that are required um, or that often require specialized instruction in order to compensate for the decreased opportunities to learn by observing others. So students who have visual impairments are not able to really see what is going on in their classroom, to learn by, by uh, observing their, their peers. So what this does is it enacts, again, what I call the, or what they call the ECC, um, and requires teaching students to the extent appropriate compensatory skills such as braille and concept development and other skills needed to access core curriculum, orientation and mobility, social interaction skills, AT, which we've already discussed today, independent living skills, recreation and leisure, um, and sensory efficiency. So it's really kind of adding some additional factors that we need to uh, discuss as, as an IEP team when you're having these meetings to meet students' needs in these areas. So th- this seems like a bill where, while not expressly mandating something, is in essence going to add a layer to what will be expected to be reviewed in the IEP process for these students, in essence? Correct, yeah, because with with students who have this particular disability, again, we have to educate students in the least restrictive environment, and usually that's uh, assuming that they're going to be, their peers are going to be rubbing off on on them, and with students with this particular disability, it makes it very difficult. So there's a new set of of factors that you should be considering um, as an IEP team when you're trying to meet the needs of a student with a, a visual impairment. And that's similar to students that are deaf and hard of hearing. There are special factors that we have to consider in the IEP process, specifically in our state law. So it'll be interesting to see if our IEP forms that we have developed in the state change to identify those special factors, similar to the way that we have those special factors for our DHH population. Interesting. Yeah, and, and one thing I, I also wanted to point out is when, when you're doing an orientation and mobility evaluation, which is something that I think is, is I, I'm personally seeing a lot more often, these need to be conducted by appropriately certified O&M specialists. And these evaluations have to be done in familiar and unfamiliar environments, varying lighting conditions in home, school, and community as, as appropriate. So it's tightening up the regulations on districts doing O&M assessments of students. That is interesting. I've never seen in any other assessment area specific requirements like that. So this is actually an, a definitely important update. Marcy, we're talking about bills that were passed. How about one that was not passed, SB 695? Well, we certainly don't always necessarily focus on bills that aren't passed, but I think it's important to note here um, that this this bill that um, our legislature passed this year but was not signed into law by our governor had to do specifically with um, the obligation to translate IEPs into um, the parent's primary language. And this piece of legislation, Sloan, was actually going to impose a 30-day timeline to get that translation done. Governor Newsom did not sign that piece of legislation into law. And this is critical because we're quite often getting questions from clients like, Marcy, you know, Allie, what is the obligation to translate an IEP into a parent's primary language? Is there a timeline? Um, so we certainly see this movement by our legislature to impose this timeline. It wasn't passed, but we want to keep an eye on this work next year and see if it's something that, that we see changing here. Did Do we know if the governor issued a veto message or explanation as to why? He did. And um, what he said is that this bill essentially went beyond what's already required by the IDA. The IDA essentially says that you have to ensure that parents can participate in IEP meetings. 
And so the governor in the veto message said that this 30-day requirement and the the mandate to translate the IEP into the parent's primary language goes beyond what's already um, in the IDA. Of course, we have other legislation that goes beyond what's in the IDA, but the, the governor specifically said um, this is a requirement, especially in light of the because the IDA is essentially an unfunded mandate um, where there's not enough funding to school districts in order to provide everything that they're required under the IDA. Do we, so I'm my, showing my naivety in this area, do we, would the difficulty here be the 30-day measure in that we do actually ultimately translate IEP documents? Is it, was that the critical component here? That was the, the component, yes. Right. Um, there already is an obligation to translate IEPs right. into parents' primary language. Our ed code actually says if the parents request it, but there are some OAH cases that go beyond what our statute actually says in the black and white letter of the law and have actually imposed an obligation on districts to translate IEP documents into a parent's primary language, even when they don't request it. Because as Ali mentioned, we have that that mandate to ensure meaningful parental participation. So the issue is how can a parent participate fully and meaningfully in the IEP process if they don't understand the paperwork that's in front of them? Yeah, and under the Obama administration with Title VI, there was a lot of guidance issued from that perspective in terms of translation of documents in a primary language. So it seems like that ultimately would be kind of the legal measure um, on at some point because th- that guidance, although I'm not certain if it's still valid presently, but the toolkit and guidance given at the time within the last five to ten years was basically any document which was substantive in a way that translation would assist the parent in engagement and participation in their child's education was something that could be subject to translation. So, but the key, I'm I'm with you, the key element here is, and I think of all the documents, apart from maybe some bond disclosure type things, IP documents have to be a total, totally tough document to ultimately translate. Just the way they're, they're prepared, the different sections and boxes and the vocabulary alone. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, And not to mention the fact that I've been in some IEPs recently where you have a parent who speaks a particular dialect of a certain language. And it's not always an easy task to find an interpreter to be there at the meeting. I would imagine it would be just as difficult to find someone to actually interpret IEP jargon into their, their native language. All right. So four that passed, one that didn't. How about, Allie, one that we've covered in our recent student legislative uh, podcast, uh, but which clearly has a direct nexus to um, students with disabilities and 504 plans, SB 223 and marijuana. Yeah, so as Amy Perry and you talked about in the student legislative update podcast, the SB 223 passed, which allows school districts to pass a policy to permit a parent of a student to come onto campus and administer medicinal cannabis to um, a student. So, Allie, how do you, what do you, where do you see this law having the most significant uh, impacts? Well, this law was certainly passed with special education students in mind. Um, so JoJo, the student who the act is actually named after, is a, indeed a special education student with an IEP. So we definitely know that it's going to impact those students. But... It remains to be seen, and it's definitely possible that it'll have a greater impact in the general education arena for parents requesting um, access to these cannabis-based medications on campus for general education students. 
Interesting. Interesting. Is that a factor which perhaps districts should take into consideration in adopting this this optional policy? Definitely. If if districts are considering adopting a policy um, under SB two two three. You're definitely going to have to involve your staff that work both with special education students and those who work um, with general education students as well. Interesting. I know we've we as a group here and outside of this room, and probably for a couple of years now, kind of brainstormed about what's next, what are the different issues that can pop up. But you know, based upon and knowing, Ali, you've done a lot of work in this marijuana area. What are some of the, you know, if we're to project some of the the tough spots that we we think may come up in this area going forward, what what would you identify maybe as your top two or three? There's definitely going to be some tough spots that come up with regard to this legislation. One issue that we we were talking about earlier is that if a student is um, attending school in a school district that has a policy consistent with SB 223 and then moves into a school district without the same policy, for special ed students in particular, um, what could potentially be that ramification. Additionally, we're also probably likely, this this bill has definitely made the news. A lot of parents of students who take medicinal cannabis for something like seizures are aware of this bill being passed. And so districts um, with that have students like this and have um, students who parents and students who rely on this medication are definitely going to be seeing, potentially seeing some requests. So Allie, if I've got my, my general uh, student hat on, I, I do know that we constantly hear from the special ed side of the house, the idea of stay put. So how does that going to come into play under this new law, if at all? So um, stay put is a term, yes, that comes up a lot in, in special education law. And the way that that could impact a school district or a student in this area is if some sort of cannabis medication or something like that, provision of that is written into the IEP. That's how stay put comes into play. And so here we recommend to districts, because marijuana is still completely illegal under federal law, not writing um, anything regarding provision of cannabis-based medication or anything like that into an IEP. And so that is how stay put can be a thorny issue, but that is avoiding writing anything regarding SB 223 or ca- providing cannabis-based medications in an IEP is a, is a way to sidestep that stay put issue, which is what the school district Rincon Valley faced when they, they had written a provision of of medication, cannabis-based medication, um, it was referred to in the IEP. Is that general kind of recommendation and practice to keep it out of the IEP? Is the exception to that the FDA approved? I'm going to say it again, epidiolex. <laughs> um, epidiolex, yeah. yes. So in that case, with the FDA approved epidiolex, that, that medication should just be treated like any other medication yeah. that you would have, um, however you handle it for, for your general education students or your special education students. Now, generally in an IEP, we're not writing the names of medications or, or anything like that. That would be in your documentation that's required in order to provide medication to students at school and or in an individual health services plan. Health services plan, okay. All right, so there's our kind of legislative roundup. Any thoughts in terms of things that which our clients should have on their mind from a SPED 504 perspective 
as we look toward the conclusion of the first semester around the state and heading into the holidays and making the turn into 2020? Anything that you three think are just worth kind of a, a, a check-in for, for districts at this point in time? I think, you know, I, I wanted to, I always think it's a good time to, to just be looking ahead with your 504 policies, your 504 manuals. We've actually been spending um, some time over the summer. We try to get uh, policies and procedures updated in terms of 504. Bullying is always an issue that has been coming up here you know, for quite some time with our district. So you want to make sure that if there is an allegation regarding a student that's being bullied, that either has a 504 or has an IEP, we want to make sure that districts are following through with their legal obligations to conduct an investigation, whether it's under the UCP, the 504, or um, you know other policies that require specific requirements to make sure that we're you know addressing bullying allegations in an appropriate manner. So I know that that comes up quite frequently and here with the start of the school year, it's something that we wanna make sure that we're following through with. Definitely. One more, um, last year a bill was passed regarding restraint and seclusion. We've touched on that before in previous podcasts. But something that it requires is record keeping in terms of when restraint seclusion is used um, and on what types of students. So that's something that districts should be aware of um, and working with their legal counsel to ensure that they're appropriately recording recording that information because it is going to be required to be reported to the CDE three months after the end of the uh, 2019-2020 school year. Right, and, and that data collection requirement is similar to but not identical to the civil rights data collection requirements for that same subject area imposed by OCR and the feds, uh, but there, there are some slight distinctions. And I think another thing to keep in mind is that data is not just about there's a focus on students with disabilities, but that data recording is not limited to just students with disabilities. And so understanding what the definitions are for restraints and seclusion under both state and federal law and what categories of students need to be tracked in that respect is something which I agree with you, Allie. Districts need to be looking at that, if they haven't already, looking at it now. And with the heightened requirements on monitoring students that we have placed in NPSs, where there might be might be a higher rate of restraints, we definitely want to make sure that we're looking at restraints of students in NPSs if we've actually placed them there by the IEP process. It's certainly a best practice approach. It's it's incumbent upon us, in my professional opinion, to be monitoring right, what's right. happening. Separate apart from the data submission process. Absolutely. I'm with you. I'm with you. Right. And I, and also for a special ed student, there's still that requirement to have a behavior emergency report if there is an incidence of restraint. And so the, the NPSs should be providing that to the districts if a student is placed there pursuant to an IEP. Thanks, guys. Painless. Thank I like this approach Thanks. because the more people that are sitting on the other side of the table for me, the less I have to talk. Marcy, <laughs> Works Kyle, <out> well for <laughs> us. Allie, thank you very much. And thank you, listeners, again, for joining us. For another Lozano Smith podcast, we hope this information about this year's legislative enactments impacting the area of special education in 504 is useful for you as you look forward to the end of the 2019 year and and ahead into 2020. We encourage all of you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find additional links to our other uh, podcast episodes, details and, and notes and links to helpful information. And also, if this is your first time listening, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.
If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.